Hey everybody, it's Eric here with Bible and Banter, and you can see that the other person on the screen is definitely definitely not Luke. Luke is on vacation, he's ditched us, and uh, I hope he's listening and enjoying, he'll enjoy the conversation that we have with our guest, Chris Day. How are you, Chris? I'm doing well, thanks for having me, and hopefully I can somewhat fill Luke's shoes <laughs> while he's gone. Well, uh, Luke is kind of, uh, he's really the comedic relief, so you have a lot of uh, oh. pictures to fill. So Yeah, I won't, I won't be very comedic, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do, I do just want to share a little bit about Chris. So Chris is, a, is an adjunct professor of Bible and Theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary and co-editor of a couple of books, Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism, and A Consuming Passion. Um, those sound like really good books. I think I have one of them. Um, where can they pick these books up that you have been a co-editor of? Uh, people can go to my Amazon authors page by going to amazon.com slash author slash Chris date. Uh, and there they'll find both the two books that I've co-edited for rethinking hell, uh, as well as two books um, that are not on the topic of hell, which are two views debate books where I, in one case, debate Calvinism. I'm, I'm a defender of Calvinism. And then the other one, I defend the deity, deity of Christ against Unitarian Dale Tuggy. So yeah, amazon.com slash author slash Chris date. So everybody now who doesn't know who you are is going to realize why we have you on the show because you say that you defend Calvinism and I'm, a, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a defender of Calvinism. So that's good. Um, that's not why I'm here today, I don't think. No, it's not. We're just yeah. we're going to talk about conditional immortality. We're going to talk about so, – so Chris, do you just want to share a little bit um, about your work with Rethinking Hell? I think the majority of our viewers and listeners are at least somewhat familiar with Rethinking Hell, uh, but – I would just like to give you an opportunity for those who aren't overly familiar. Sure. Uh, so Rethinking Hell is a um, is a ministry not affiliated with any particular denomination, whether Advent Christian or otherwise. Uh, and we are conservative evangelicals, all of whom at one point in our Christian walk um, held to the historically dominant view of hell as eternal torment. Uh, but we've all become convinced because of our study of the Bible um, that something other than eternal torment is true, namely conditional immortality and annihilationism. And so sort of our, our primary goal is that we try to winsomely and persuasively um, defend and articulate and promote conditional immortality and annihilationism as evangelicals. So, you know, you're going to find some people who hold to that this view that aren't evangelicals because they're Unitarians and not Christian or, or for some other reason. Um, but we, but we promote and defend it as evangelicals. Um, but then as close second to that primary goal, we feel really strongly that this is an issue that Christians shouldn't have to divide over. Um, and so we do our best to model and encourage uh, respectful, irenic, uh, brotherly debate between people who hold to any of the three views on hell, because too, too often it's a topic that generates more heat than light. Um, and we'd like to change that and, um, uh, and, and, and encourage evangelicalism at large to be willing to have this in-house debate vigorously, but with brotherly love and respect and kindness. Yeah, that's that's probably important. I remember when I first entered into the Rethinking Hell forum, um, and I was still kicking the tires. I wasn't quite sure, so I had taken a 
um, kind of a youth pastor job at an Advent Christian church. And my first concern was like, Hey, I want to make sure you guys aren't heretics. Right. Like, so, <laughs> so I'm trying to figure that out. But I remember like one of my first posts in rethinking hell was in response to someone who was a conditional universalist or evangelical universalist. What's that? I said, or claim to be, they're not yeah. can't be. It's like, it's like a, it's calling somebody a married bachelor. <laughs> yeah. So it was very, so that was kind of like my first interaction. I thought like, this is why people think uh, conditional immortality and annihilationism is a heresy is because it's associated with universalism, so to speak, and just putting a new t term on it. And I remember getting a little bit of heat about it. And I kind of realized like, well, this is not the place for that conversation which um, which I've grown in my appreciation for Rethinking Hell. And it's a place that we kind of have a, have a single topic of dialogue in anything outside of that we're really not going to delve into. Yeah, not in the context of Rethinking Hell. That's right. So yeah. uh, sometimes, like James White, uh, he has criticized me and, and Rethinking Hell for not taking a stance on, say, the intermediate state, whether people are conscious while dead. Mm -hmm. um, but he was mistaking the ministry's focus and stance on each of our individual focuses and, mm -hmm. and stances. So I don't hold to a conscious intermediate state, but that has nothing to do with my work for Rethinking Hell. Same with Calvinism, same with my Young Earth creationism or any of the other positions I hold. Those are things that I hold and defend outside of the context of Rethinking Hell. And this is really important because one of the strengths of conditional immortality and annihilationism is that it's uh, it's consistent with virtually any um, position that evangelicals hold on any intramural Christian debate, whether Calvinist versus Arminian or cessationist versus continuationist or young earth versus old earth, etc. You can hold to conditional immortality and be consistent with what the Bible teaches about hell, regardless of what you think on these other topics. So when you start talking about having a con or, or being critiqued by James White, that's pretty, that's kind of a big deal. You know, we're, you know, James White um, is kind of, you know, uh, a pretty big deal within evangelical, uh, specifically reformed um, evangelical circles. You kind of, you kind of know you've made it within evangelicalism when you start getting critiqued by James White, right? Like, is that, do you kind of like look at that and go, wow, this is kind of cool? Or, or do you hear that and go, oh man, like for me, I like James White, although I'm not, I, I do. I don't like everything that he does or how he goes about things, but I appreciate what he's done. If I were critiqued by James White, I, I either might, you know, crawl under a rock or like look at it as like, man, maybe I've made it in some way. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, I suppose it's a mix of emotions for me. I have been a fan of James White for most of my Christian faith. Um, you know, I've been a Christian for 20 years now, just about. And for most of that time, I've been listening to The Dividing Line, and I've been a fan of Radio Free Geneva and all of that. Um, he is uh, a big influence in me in terms of my ability to debate, my uh, thoughts on Calvinism and a lot of other things. So I'm a big fan of his. And, and yes, it is. Um, nice to have to be on his radar. But on the other hand, it is um, a bit painful emotionally because um, he's not very charitable when he critiques. Um, mm -hmm. And he's and I think he's somewhat disingenuous and, and uh, he mischaracterizes things a lot. And, and, and as somebody who's such a fan of his and looks up to him so greatly, that could be painful. But the other reason it's painful is because and, and Dr. White knows this. I've for years desperately wanted to debate him on the topic we're discussing today. Um, and he just has, as of yet, been unwilling um, to do that. He's perfectly willing to critique in episodes of The Dividing Line, but he won't 
to use the proverb, put his money where his mouth is. Um, and mm. that's frustrating. But I think, I think that might change in the not too distant future. He's dropped a hint or two here or there on the show that, um, uh, that it's something that he might enter into the arena um, precisely because nobody else is doing it. Um, this is one of the things that I've learned over the years is that it's very hard to find a defender of eternal torment to actually um defend the view and debate. And uh, those who do very often don't know anything about it and they do a really terrible job because they're just sort of, they're, they're going by what they've heard um, anti-cultists say about annihilationism, which isn't at all reflective of what, what evangelical right. annihilationists actually believe. And so they go into debate totally unprepared and they just, they get the floor mopped or, you know, the, the floor is mopped with them. And Dr. White has said in the, in the on the dividing line that, that 99% of people who believe in eternal torment don't know why and can't deal with our arguments. And I think it's because of the poor quality of defenders of eternal torment and debate that he is increasingly feeling the pressure to enter into the arena himself. And I, and to be honest, I hope that that he does finally succumb to that pressure because I can think of nobody that, uh, that I would rather debate on this topic and with whom a debate would be more edifying than with anybody else than with Dr. White, because we were, we have so many of the same views on so many things uh, that we're going to focus like a laser beam on the actual texts that are relevant to this debate. And we're not going to get it lost in all sorts of side issues and things. So anyway, ho hopefully one day that'll happen. So to sum up everything that you just said, uh, Dr. James White, why are you scared of Chris Date? Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag debate Chris Date. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, you know, what, what would be interesting is I recently watched a debate between um, White and Doug Wilson. Um, mm. I, don't, I don't know if you – it was probably maybe 10 years ago that they debated over whether or not to call Roman Catholics – brothers in Christ. And it was mm. a fascinating debate. It was really good. But I, what I appreciated is, is I recognize what you just pointed out in, in Dr. James White, in that sometimes he can be uncharitable. He, he can misrepresent views at times. Doug Wilson was very winsome in his arguments. And mm. it was kind of, you could see the, you could see a, a stark difference between James White kind of like making these arguments and would crack a smile once in a while when Doug Wilson would make a joke, but for the most part, like the scowl and then Doug Wilson just kind of very, very winsome. Now I disagree with, with um, Doug Wilson on, on, on a few things, but it was just, I appreciated his approach to um, the debate and it, that just could be, you know, for, for James White, his game face, so to speak, you know, it's very much a, a competition when it comes to a debate. Now, have you ever, lost a debate because everything I've listened to you or listened from you, um, you've kind of wiped the floor with people. And I almost thought like we were talking about it a little bit before you came on air, the importance of your debate with Al Mohler back in 2015 in my own walk and in, in coming to conditional immortality. And the thing that I found most amazing is I had recently learned that he has uh, an eidetic memory, which, you know, he can recall things. If he reads it, he can remember it. He can remember the page number, all the words on the page. And it seems like his arguments in the debate were largely from tradition and, and very little exegesis. Like he, he kept bringing up Matthew 25, right? Uh, Matthew 25, 46. And you're going through the exegesis and you pull passages from all over the place. Like your ability to cite scripture it was almost like you're the one with the eidetic memory. 
You know, like you can just recall everything. Um, so have you ever lost a debate in that? Like, have you ever walked away and gone, man, I really could have done better at articulating that guy beat me in this, in this, this round. Um, so I have, I can't say whether I've won or lost any of the debates I've done because none of them have been judged. And, and, you know, of course I'm going to be biased, but here's what I will say. Um, when it comes, I've never heard anybody say that my opponent has offered a more compelling case than mine mm-hmm. um, with possibly two exceptions. One is with Leighton Flowers. And I think the reason there is because um, so uh, so many people, um, uh, when it comes to the Calvinist Armenian debate, they uh, they they they're coming to the debate already convinced of the view that they have, and you know I can bring some texts and Leighton or some other non-Calvinists can bring, bring some texts, and it can seem to somebody who's biased on either side of the debate that oh yeah it totally went in that person's favor, mm-hmm. uh, and and so I I think that it would be harder to say that I've lost or that I've won my debates versus Leighton Flowers. And then also I debated a Lutheran named uh, Jordan Cooper on the extent of the atonement. I believe in limited atonement. And I think I did okay in my opening presentation, but I went into that debate woefully unprepared. I didn't realize that Lutheranism was such a weird uh, enigmatic view of atonement and so forth. And um, I don't think I necessarily lost that debate, but I definitely wasn't anywhere near as prepared for it as I should have been. Mm -hmm. So, but but apart from those, um, you know, when it comes to my hell debates, I think that by and large, people have said that the traditionalists, the defenders of eternal torment that I've debated have not have uh, not done well. We'll just say it that way. So, I mean, I don't I don't want to be a total fanboy. Um, like, <laughs> I, like, but so back at um, TGC a couple of years ago, they had it in New England. I went up to D.A. Carson. And, um, and he was, he was a speaker there. And I just went up to him and I was kind of like, he's one of my heroes. I love, I love when he talks. I could listen to him talk all day. Uh, I love his commentary on the gospel of John is phenomenal. And I went up to him and I kind of just like blanked and didn't know what to say. <laughs> it was really weird. And it was kind of just super awkward. What was it like? Cause he, I would put him on the same level as say, um, Al Moeller. What was it like to debate? and engage in conversation with someone that's such a one, someone that we can admire so much. Like he, he's had such a great impact on evangelical conservative, evangelical Christianity in the last 30 years. We owe a lot to him, even if we disagree on, on the, um, on the nature, nature of hell. Yeah. So, I mean, what was that like? How, are, are you just like stone cold? Like you don't get, you don't look at someone and go, wow, this guy's really accomplished or, and you just go into it or, are you just really good at keeping those emotions under check? Um, you know, I get really nervous in the minutes and even hours before something like that. But once the recording starts, once I start speaking, I just sort of settle into um, the the case that I'm presenting and the material that I've learned uh, so well over the over the years. Um, and uh, now, when I went up to so I uh, last year at the annual ETS. Um, conference in, um, I think it was San Diego. No, anyway, somewhere in California, I think it was. Um, I met him in person and was super nervous and like you, didn't know what to say and almost didn't say anything at all. Um, 
because I wasn't about to settle into a case that I'm extremely familiar with, you know, yeah. but when I go into a debate, I'm, I, I know my, my content well, and I don't accept the debate that I don't think I can win. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just sort of, I, I put my fandom aside, my fanship of the person that I'm debating to the side or my, uh, uh, my off of them. And I just sort of settle into the material because the, the great thing about this debate, this topic is that, um, the Bible is about as clear on this as virtually anything else. Mm -hmm. And so you can, no matter whom you're debating, you can go into a debate defending conditional immortality. And as long as you know your stuff, you're going to kick butt because the Bible is so clear. It would be like, um, it'd be like going into a debate arguing against somebody that doesn't think Jesus was human. You know, the Bible is so clear that God came in the form of a human that Jesus was human, that to go into a debate with somebody who denies it, where the standard is the Bible itself, you have no chance of losing. So um, how, and, and I, how do you, how do you like, how do you not get super frustrated when you have someone like Al Mohler? I, I lost count of how many times he cited Matthew 25, 46 and like said it. And he says, well, what do you do? I'm just going to read it real quick. And these, uh, and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. And he goes, eternal, eternal. And he's talking about, what are you going to do with eternal punishment? What are you going to do with eternal punishment? And you're just kind of like, well, you're misreading it. <laughs> you know, like that's not, that's not what eternal means in the context in which you. Well, actually it's funny you mentioned this because I do think eternal means exactly what Dr. Moeller thinks it means in both life and punishment. Our, this, our debate was not over how long life and punishment are. Our debate is over what the nature of that punishment is. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it is frustrating, but the thing is in, in really high profile debates like that, um, there's no need to get frustrated over your opponent doing that because all they're doing is showing the many viewers and listeners how, um, how woefully empty the case for eternal torment really is. So why get frustrated? He's 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 winning the debate for me. Yeah, right? he's By making the case for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, uh, and that was one of the things when I listened to that debate. It was just kind of like, all right, Al, let, let's see it. Like let's let's hear the argumentation. But it seems like the same the same proof text that we might use. We're going at the same proof text, right? So there's no. It's not like the the Calvinist and the Arminian who might have different proof texts for their uh, their perspective on soteriology, but we have the same ones. And when you read it plainly, I mean, if you peel away this kind of this cultural mindset that we have that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, which is something that I think you know authors outside of yourself and myself have have come up, you know, I've shared like, hey, even the early church fathers believed something different than what we believe today. I think um, uh, John, Dr. John Roller's done a good job at, at encompassing that and done some good work. I think you've actually shared some of that in the Rethinking Hell um, page uh, that, I mean, really, we got the same text. We just have to peel back away our own presuppositions before we get to the text. And, and really that comes down to good exegesis, right? Is getting to the, getting to what the Bible means to say, what does God mean to say in the text and not do, not what I want it to mean or not what culture wants it to mean. Yeah. The analogy that I've often used is um, what it would be like to be born and raised with blue sunglasses on, you know, you, you don't realize you're wearing blue sunglasses all your life. And so somebody comes to you as a young adult and says, what color do you see the world? And you're going to say, what in the world are you talking about? The answer isn't blue because you don't realize you're wearing blue sunglasses on. Um, but if you take those off and you look at 
and you look at the world, all of a sudden it looks different. And the text hasn't changed, but the, the lens through which you've looked at it changes. And what I've often said for years now is that with virtually no exception, every single proof text historically cited in defense of eternal torment proves upon closer examination when you take those glasses off to be better support for conditional immortality and annihilationism. Um, so Matthew 25, 41 and 46, eternal fire and eternal punishment, or 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, everlasting destruction, Mark 9, 48, the worm will not die, the fire not, will not be quenched. Revelation 14, Revelation 20, all of it not only isn't a challenge to our view of hell, it's actually better support for our view of hell than for the tradition, despite their so often citing it as if it's evidence for their view. So what do you think would take, what do you think it will take for there to be greater acceptance within evangelical Christianity for conditional immortality? Um, would, would it take someone like an Al Mohler to, because I think, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't Francis Chan who, I mean, we can all have issues with some of the things that have happened more recently with his endorsement of like, say, Todd White and whatnot, but he's kind of been an evangelical darling for a good 20 years. Um, and I believe I I'd actually read that he has teetered on conditional immortality. So if he's kind of delved into that a little bit, what's it going to take for it to get greater acceptance where you could actually be, say, a Presbyterian, a Southern Baptist along those lines and still be a, a conditionalist? I'll answer that in a second, but I did just want to say I noticed uh, your scrolling banner at the bottom of the thing is saying interview with Christ date. Oh, my goodness. Say, I'm sorry. I am not the Messiah. <laughs> far from it. Um, well, so first of all, let me talk about Francis Chan for a second. Uh, to my knowledge, Francis Chan has not actually shifted at all. Um, the person who has changed his mind, it was Francis Chan's co-author, Preston Sprinkle. Mm -hmm. um, they had co-authored a book called Erasing Hell back in 2000. 13 or 14, somewhere around there. And they they landed slightly in favor of eternal torment. And since then, Preston Sprinkle has now become an annihilationist. Um, as far as I know, Francis Chan has not shifted. Um, but as far as your question, um, John, John Stackhouse, I think, answered that question in his plenary presentation at our very first conference. Um, John Stackhouse is, a, is an apologist and a scholar. Um, he was at Regent College. He used to have the chair that... Um, was it John Piper or J.I. Packer had at Regent College, but now he's on the other side of Canada. Anyway, um, he said at our conference that what it's going to take is for somebody, some high profile person with prestige and with clout um, to come out in and affirm and defend this view. You know, we had that in John Stott. Um, a number of years ago, and that caused a controversy. And I think, um, enabled much of the debate that's happening now. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we need more John Stotts. I think we need more respected, uh, admired evangelical scholars with scouts, with clout and prestige to accept this view and defend it um, for, for the tide to really finally change uh, finally and forever. The problem is that it is, it is often very costly for somebody to come out in defense of this view. Um, people lose their jobs. Uh, you know, if you've got somebody who's making a, a professor salary, which is not very large to begin with, um, and they're trying to make ends meet for their family, and the threat looms over their head like the sword of Damocles that if they change their mind on the nature of hell, they're going to get fired. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not likely to even give our view a fair hearing, let alone 
come out in defense of it, you know, having been convinced of it. Um, so it's, it's, it's really sort of a catch 22. We need people to um, suffer the cost and come out in, in acceptance and defense of this view. But at the same time, it's really difficult for them to do because of how costly it tends to be. You know where there's one place that's not very costly? Hmm. The Advent Christian denomination. We, we, hey, we, uh, we've been, um, we've, we've held this view since the beginning and foundation of our denomination. So, um, if you know anybody getting fired from being a professor or a pastor, we're always looking. Well, I, I appreciate that, but we hell, um, and, and I'm, this is not at all a critique of anything you just said, but we are thinking hell don't think that the wisest choice, uh, wisest course of action for people that become conditionalists and then end up suffering from their uh, suffering from their faith communities. We don't think that the wisest course of action is to leave those communities in favor of other ones. Mm -hmm. um, we think that provided a local church community or a larger denominational community is, is willing to tolerate conditionalists in their midst, we think conditionalists should remain there because this isn't an issue worth dividing over. And I think when we leave one faith community um, to go to another one where our view is more accepted, what it communicates to our critics is that we're divisive and that this is an issue that is um, more divisive than we're claiming it is. Mm -hmm. So I would just encourage, I mean, I'm not at all saying people shouldn't become Advent Christians. I'm not one. I don't know enough about them, um, but, uh, but I'm not necessarily, I'm not telling people they shouldn't. But what yeah. I am saying is if somebody's a Southern Baptist or Presbyterian and they become committed to this view and can remain Southern Baptist or Presbyterian, even if they lose teaching positions and stuff like that, I would rather them stay in those communities and make a difference there rather than abandon them for Advent Christians where they might be able to get a little bit more money because they don't suffer the loss of their job, but then they end up failing to reach all those Presbyterians or Southern Baptists they once were a part of. Yeah, I don't think I could agree any more with you. And I think it comes from a high view of ecclesiology. So if you if you truly believe in the covenant nature of the local church, then if you can still endure, say, um, a level of church discipline in which maybe you have uh, the elders of the church investigating your own views, and, and there's probably some uh, examples of that on the Rethinking Hell um, group chat or group group page on Facebook, where people say, hey, I, you know, I shared my conditionalist views and my church is, is putting me under care or under observation, and the elders are going to investigate these views. And you hear some really good things come out of it, and then you hear some really bad things come out of it as well. So uh, to me, I, that that's really the church doing what the church is supposed to do. Um, you hate to hear that people could be kicked out of their church, removed from membership, um, and it becomes a divisive issue, not on the part of the individual who holds, holds to conditional immortality, but on behalf of the church. And really it comes down to whether or not that church, if they have, say, a statement of faith or a confession, um, if that if, – if, holding to that confession or that statement of faith is a requirement for membership, then in another sense, you can't really blame the church by saying, well, if you step outside of these lines that we consider orthodoxy, then we're just going to kindly ask you to not be a member anymore. Yeah. And, and, and I agree with you there. What they can be blamed for, however, is having a statement of faith that divides Christians in the first place. You know, I think that a... Um, well, you sound like, now you sound like a real Advent Christian. <laughs> well, <laughs> no creed but the Bible. <laughs> well, now, hold on. I, I, I think well, that I'm, not, I'm not a no creed but the Bible, but we do have people that probably watch and listen to this that 
Um, I mean, we we recently adopted the um, NAEA statement of faith about three years ago as a denomination. We've had a history of non-Trinitarianism in our denomination that we've really tried to um, win stamp. them back. Yeah. Um, well, I, I want to be careful not to say stamp out, but yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so um, we, we're trying to win them back, but we're also trying to stand for orthodoxy and um, in a sense, but what what things are the the things that we are willing to to uh, divide over? So I, I only make the joke about no creed but the Bible because we do have people who are staunch. Well, we don't want to bind anyone's conscience to anything other than the scriptures. Now I think they forget that no creed but the Bible is a creed in and of itself, and really a statement of faith and a creed is simply just an articulation of what you say what you believe the Bible teaches. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I think I think my problem with churches like the ones we've been talking about is not that they um, act in consistent uh, or consistently with their statement of faith, but rather that their statement of faith is divisive where it shouldn't be. Um, I'm all for churches and institutions having identities um, that are perhaps unique in certain ways. So, for example, I don't mind if a church wants to be known for being, say, a premillennial church as opposed to uh, all-millennial like I am or post-millennial or whatever. Um, but to require people to sign on to these particular stances on secondary non-essentials of the faith just to be a member, I think is extremely problematic. And I don't see why a church couldn't allow somebody to teach on other topics at that church, except for ones where they disagree with that ethos that the, that the church has. Um, when you, when you, you're, you're, you're basically refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to operate within uh, or to, to, to operate through people in the gifts that he gives them. Um, you know, if you've got people that are gifted teachers, but they hold the conditionalism and so you refuse to allow them to be teachers, even if they don't, even if they're willing not to teach on conditionalism, you're mm -hmm. stifling the Holy Spirit, you know, and you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're refusing people to be able to um, use their gift, their God-given gifts. Um, and it's even worse, like I said, at the membership level, there's no reason, there's no good reason why a church should require you to believe a, a particular view on a non-essential of the faith, just to be a member of the church. The only thing I could think of possibly is where um, a view uh, take, for example, the complementarian egalitarian debate. Mm -hmm. If you're an egalitarian and you believe women should be able to be in ministry, how are you going to serve under a staff where they're all complementarian and they don't think? Thank you. Thank you. I'm not the only one to say. It. So we're in a denomination where we have we have a mix of complementarians and egalitarians. And I've often brought this up. I'm a complementarian. Um, I consider myself a narrow complementarian, and I've often you know shared with people. Like it's very difficult for us to to work together in a denomination in um, when you know if, if my ordination works with a, a board that has a mix of complementarians and egalitarians and if I if I'm an egalitarian I'm not going to ordain a complementarian because they are going to be limiting women in their church as far as what they can do to uh, to to minister to people and if I'm a complementarian on on a committee that is ordaining then I'm not going to, you know, obviously um, ordain someone who's a, an egalitarian because then, again, they would be operating outside of the bounds of what Scripture teaches. Well, but exactly the same thing could be said by somebody who believes in eternal torment isn't on a board like that. They're mm. they're 
their beliefs, this person who is a candidate, their beliefs are outside of what scripture teaches. They'd be wrong, of course. But see, the point that I'm getting at is that it's one thing if the multiple views on a secondary issue interfere with even being able to to to, to um, fellowship with one another. Mm-hmm. And I'm not as convinced as you are that the complementarian egalitarian debate is one of those issues, but I'm open to that being one of those issues. I'm just saying that for many other issues like the nature, the, the timing of the millennium and of Christ's return, the nature of hell, whether or not uh, the, 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 the um, supernatural gifts are continuing to be in operation, all of these secondary things, I don't see any reason why a congregation can't fellowship and minister together, even even if they hold to various views on these secondary essentials. And so when a church excludes somebody for not uh, from membership uh, because they don't hold to the traditional view of hell, I, I think that grieves, grieves the heart of God. And I do blame them for that, even if I don't blame them for acting consistently with their piss poor statement of faith. <laughs> so what do you, so where do you, I see where you're coming from. I'm wondering how you view denominationalism. Like, is that a benefit or, Maybe denominationalism, but associations, denominations and associations of churches, um, should it be very wide open as far as really we're only together on first tier issues or are they things that should be gathered together around second tier issues as well? So like a Presbyterian, uh, you know, obviously they're Calvinistic and also um, they baptize babies wrongly Um, (laughs) and the Baptists, of course are you know baptized they're credo baptists so you have to be a believer um to be baptized so is there room for that or do you kind of see like a um greater um greater cooperation where you don't need those type of distinctives yeah i mean that's a good question i i don't take a strong stance on that question as i already said i'm open to um it being sensible for churches and institutions to have uh, identities that go beyond the essentials of the faith, you know, like a premillennial church, a Presbyterian, you know, Pado Baptist church, whatever. But I'm not convinced that that's necessary or necessarily even helpful. Um, let's say, hypothetically speaking, let's let's use the the baptism issue as a, as a test case. Let's say you've got a church that um, has some. Some people who believe that uh, infants should be baptized and others who don't. And let's say that you even have that difference of opinion on the staff itself and on the faculty. I can totally understand um, a credo Baptist pastor being uncomfortable baptizing one of the congregants' babies, right? But why couldn't a pedo Baptist pastor at the same church do it? And likewise, um, a pedo Baptist pastor might be kind of disappointed that somebody in the congregation isn't willing to baptize their infant because they have credo baptist uh convictions but why not tolerate that difference of opinion and um allow that person to be baptized when the child gets old enough or whatever i i understand that it's going to take a degree of cooperation and compromise and stuff like that but i don't see why that level of compromise and and cooperation is any sort of hindrance to doing the work of ministry and evangelism and things. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say I'm not as convinced as you are that um, the complementary and egalitarian debate is is something that really can't work together. I think it very well possibly could, except that you wouldn't have complementarians be, being willing to sit under a female pastor, and, and that could be a bit of an issue for sure. Yeah, and I, and I think I agree with you because I think I overstate my view because I see that there could be issues immediately and down the road. And I just 
I, I don't see how you can get past some of those issues. And the same thing could be said for, say, the baptism issue. And I'm more, um, there, there have been times in my ministry, be, and probably because I, I read a lot of Reformed writings where I, I become increasingly like, oh, well, maybe there is validity to, um, to pedo-baptism. Uh, I'm still a credo-baptist, but you know, I look at it and, and hear like a, a Presbyterian perspective and go, I understand how they get there, you know, and, and I respect it. You know, they're, they, they look at their children as, as those who are still par, are part of the kingdom in a peculiar or, or, or particular way. Um, but still, that's going to cause issues within, within a church where, you know, is this child part of the kingdom or not part of the kingdom? Are they part of the covenant community? Why would that matter? What, how, what, what, and I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm just yeah. challenging, I'm just playing the devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, let's say that you've got a congregation where half of the pastors think that the, a baptized different is a part of the kingdom of God, is part of the covenant community, and the other mm -hmm. half of the pastorate are credo Baptists and think that this child is just an ordinary, as of yet, unbelieving person. Mm -hmm. How is that going to change the way they treat that child? So treating the child, I don't think there should be a difference in how you treat the child, but I could see an issue in the sense that, um, you know, we look at baptism, I think from a credo perspective, as something that signals or identifies you with Christ and saying um, that Christ has saved me, I've put my trust and faith in him, we baptize, you know, based on their profession of faith. Um, and we look at that as, as a mark of the Christian faith that is incredibly important. It's something that our Lord calls us to do. Um, and if we have the perspective that he hasn't called us to do it when it's young, then we look at it as being something of being disobedient, you know? So is there an element of disobedience there? Um, in the okay. So you're that? saying, let me, let me make sure I understand. You're saying if a child is baptized as an infant, then would some of the complementarian pastors, sorry, uh, some of the credo Baptist pastors think that if that child refuses to get baptized later in life because they were already baptized as an infant, there's the question of whether or not it's it's obedient. Is that what you're is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so because you know I've had conversations with older members, people who have been in the faith for 20, 30 years and they've never been baptized. Now, I mean, I think you and I would both agree baptism is not a is not a requirement for salvation. Um, but it is something that signals that you've been saved. It's something that, that um, display, it's a display of God's work in your life and, and that miraculous work. Uh, however, if I, if I'm talking to someone who's, who's been in the faith for 20 or 30 years and they say, well, I'm a, I'm a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. I've served him. I believe in him. And you say, well, when were you baptized? And they say, well, I've never been baptized. I don't think I need to. You go, well, why? And a lot of people might, and I've heard this before, I just don't feel like I need to go in the water. And it's like, well, Jesus, I mean, <laughs> the scriptures say that you're supposed to get baptized. So what do you say to that? Yeah, but, you know, I just don't feel like I need to. And well, but, what the, but what about the person who was baptized as an infant and is now an adult and has been identifying with the community for his, you know, entire adolescence? Mm -hmm then is that person say, look, I don't think I need to be baptized again. I'm a pedo Baptist. I was baptized when I was an infant. I've been a faithful part of the community ever since. It, would it really be an act of disobedience not to be baptized again? I, I don't necessarily think it would be my per, my personally, but being, having come from the Southern Baptist convention, I could see the conscience of, of many others saying, 
no, there, there should be an adult baptism um, based on, uh, based on being a believer at my church. I mean, I've run into this where I've had individuals who they were baptized as infants in either the Presbyterian church or in other churches. And they've asked me my thoughts. And I've said, well, what does your conscience allow for? You know, what, what, how is God, how is God working on your conscience? Because that's going to be what's important. How do you view your own baptism? Was it a signal that, that God has had you in the faith for your entire life? Um, in the miraculous work that he's done in you? Or is it something that you're, was just thrust upon you um, and, and it really has no meaning? And I, I allow that. To, so that's kind of like the, I think there's like the theology of how we discuss this and what best practices are. But then I think when it gets to the nitty gritty of the pastoral work, sometimes we need to use a lot of discernment in how we apply our theology and show a lot of grace. Yeah, I agree with you. And and, and either way, you know, the, the things we've just been talking about for the past few minutes are exactly the kind of um, hard work that I said might need to be done if we do start to uh, move away from this divisive denominationalism um, and, and, and have statements of faith that are the essentials of the faith and, and not anything more. But here's what I will say, even if on baptism and on complementarianism versus egalitarianism, even if those and some other secondary issues are things where you can't have people really effectively work together in ministry at the same church if they hold to differing views, I would challenge anybody to identify such an aspect of uh, this debate, the debate over hell. Because if you, um, I mean, just look at how evan evangelists who believe in eternal torment usually speak in, in doing <laughs> ministry. The right comfort <laughs> approach? Uh, <laughs> the right comfort approach? Well, even Ray Comfort very often just uses the biblical language of death. You know, um, uh, he might mean by death immortality and everlasting life in hell, which of course is dumb. But nevertheless, that's he just uses the biblical language very often. There's not going to be a whole lot of difference between how conditionalists and traditionalists are going to do evangelism, are going to minister to the people at a church or whatever. And so I will um, put it on a table now that I can't, I don't think anybody will be able to identify any meaningful way in which a mix of views on the nature of hell is going to interfere with the church's ability to do its job. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, so do you, do you ascribe to like um, Moeller's view of the three tiers of, of theological triage? Cause you've talked about like first and second tier issues. I'm wondering if, if you have room for third tier issues. Well, I've kind of sort of already indicated that, you know, I, I think there are definitely essentials over which we should divide. And then I'm open to there being secondaries that are of greater import than still other tertiary um, doctrines because they affect how we're going to do ministry uh, together and whether or not we'll be able to do it together. I'm open to that uh, that distinction. And I'll add that um, even if you put aside it, the, the, the a doctrine's ability to um, – or whether or not people who hold to different views on a topic can work together or not. I don't think that's the only thing that might distinguish a secondary from a tertiary um, uh, view. So, for example, um, many people, it seems to me, who hold to, say, universalism do so not because they're convicted that the Bible teaches it, but because they can't countenance the idea that God might not save everybody, you know, for one reason or another. And if somebody holds to a view like that, or say egalitarianism or some other issue, because, for the wrong reasons, then I could see that as being a secondary thing, even if it wouldn't affect the way that they work together, minister together, or whatever. 
but even then notice that the difference isn't so much between doctrines, but why one holds to a doctrine. And that, it seems to me, is of greater concern than the doctrine itself. Um, anyway, that's a long answer. But to, to, in short, yes, I'm open to a kind of threefold um, triage of theology like that, which uh, Dr. Muller offers. Yeah. So, I, and I kind of guess, like for each of us, maybe we put we arrange our doctrines in those second and third tier categories differently. Like, like in just talking with you, I wonder if I put complementarianism in that second tier, but I put uh, the doctrines of hell in the third tier, and and just what do I do with that second tier? Is that something that um, is a local church issue, or is that a, a more broad thing? You know, I think. That's what we have to think through when we talk about these things um, and show charity in it. So like if I um, – like we have – we like I've said, we have egalitarians in our denomination. I don't think they're not Christians, <laughs> you know, um, but someone who might be a universalist that might or, – or someone who rejects the deity of Christ, those are a couple of things I might go, man, I, I, I feel like I need – I'm concerned for their soul. I need to work to, to win them over to Christ. I agree. The deity of Christ is an essential, and I would be concerned about the salvation of somebody who denied it as well. Um, but you're right. I think that there probably there are probably more things you're willing to put in that second category than I am. That's probably yeah. true. But that doesn't mean I'm right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I get the sense you have a wider range of people that you debate. So I wonder if and with being in um, on you know working with rethinking hell, it exposes you to people and approaches that maybe um are less narrow than the ones the circles that i've often run in so it, so it maybe creates in you a greater sense of humility and char in charity with others that i i hope one day i can have that <laughs> well i mean i'd like to think that's true i hope that's the case but it's also possible just playing the role of devil's advocate here that my the friendships that i've developed with people who hold to some of these other views inclines me to think that they should be considered Christians, even though they hold to a one of these other views. So for example, um, historically, I wouldn't have hesitated saying that open theism is heresy. Um, but in part, not exclusively, but in part because of the open theists that I've come to know and, and, and uh, be friends with, of course, I don't want to think that they're heretics, right? Yeah. So that's why now I'm not as prepared as I used to be to say that open theism is a heresy. And so I just don't know. I, I, I think the reason why um, I, I, I think probably the dominant reason why I have sort of a more open tent view than maybe you do is just because um, uh, precisely because of what you said, the ministry that I'm the ministry I'm doing with rethinking hell has has caused me to see so many people hurt and ostracized and excluded and all sorts of things for holding this view that I've maybe I'm swinging too far to the other end of the spectrum and and not um, keeping the tent small enough. I just don't know. I, I, I we all sort of have to try to draw the lines in the sand where we think is most biblical and most consistent. Yeah logic and so forth and we draw those lines in different places sometimes yeah it is it is really important and i think because we are we're fellow conditionalists we do end up in circles where you know let, let's fit the fundamentalist reform circles are the darkest places on the internet <laughs> like um i don't know how often you tread in those waters i maybe spend too much time on twitter looking at what you know on those things and and it's like, it's, it's insane how uncharitable many people in maybe 
that might share our theological views, but they are just so uncharitable and, and they come across as so hateful in, in ways um, that as conditionalists, that maybe we have swung the other way in a good way in being charitable with people and being winsome, but how far is too far? You know, so how, you know, like you're talking about open theism um, and saying like, man, I really don't want to call them heretics. Uh, like, I, I don't want to, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to call them heretics either. But if they are, I mean, they are, you know what I mean? And so it's kind of like one of those things that we need to be careful. I, I almost say it this way. I say it to say it to my church, the truth is the truth. And um, we take into people's into consideration people's feelings in how we apply the truth. So we apply the truth, but say it, do it in, in a way that is charitable, loving, and winsome, rather than, hey, here's the truth. If you don't believe it, you're a big dummy. And to recognize that not all truths are equally vital, you know. Um, That's fair. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that we need to, I, I, I'd like to err on the side of an open tent rather than on the side of a, or sorry, a, a large tent rather than err on the side of a small tent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my sort of default is if it's not, if it's not a view that is captured in one of the ecumenical creeds, and if it's not an issue that is explicitly condemned as heretical by the scriptures, like a denial of the deity of Christ or a belief that the resurrection already happened, um, that's something hyper-preterists believe. Um, if it's not into one of those two categories, my thinking is let's default to the view that it's that it's not essential um, and then only elevate it to the level of essential if a really, really good argument could be made. And I've yet to see a really, really good argument made for, say, calling open theism heresy um, or or calling egalitarianism a real severe problem, you know, or, or anything along those lines. Um, and just to be clear, I wouldn't call it a really large, severe problem. I think there's concerns with it, um, just to clarify my earlier point. Sure, sure. My, my only concern, like, I have good friends that are egalitarians. Um, and I love them deeply, but doing ministry alongside in the local church or when we're ordaining together, I just see problems along with that, you know, so, which is fine, which is okay. Something of, of a little bit lighter. Um, we talked about this before we got on air. Uh, I didn't realize this, but you used to play hockey. (laughs) Um, and the people who, who listen and watch the show know that I play hockey and I talk about it all the time. So tell me a little bit about your background playing hockey, man. All my um, childhood and, and adolescence, I tried a number of different activities, uh, sport, you know, physical sport type activities. Um, none of them ever stuck. And I was never a very athletic kid. I was obese. I mean, I'm obese now. It's sort of the way I'm naturally inclined. But when I was in my last year of junior high, I think it was, I made a friend um, who introduced me to hockey via roller hockey, street hockey. And, you know, and so I, I tried it out with them and uh, got some roller blades and, and tried it out and wasn't any good at first, but quickly started developing something of a, of a talent in net minding is what we in the hockey world call goalie. <laughs> And started playing in like roller hockey leagues and eventually pick up ice hockey occasionally. Um, And yeah, it was a blast. It it helped me get into incredible shape over the course of like one year. I went from being a obese, uh, unattractive guy to to a barrel chested fit guy that (laughs) girls were hitting on. And and I loved it. Um, 
but uh, uh, and, and yeah, so I played for for a few years, but I just have not, you know, in, in the in the passing years, I've not had time to be able to keep it up. Hockey is, um, especially ice hockey, is is an expensive hobby, um, especially for a netminder. You know, I, I think my mom when she took me up to Canada to go buy equipment there because it would have been cheaper than if we bought it in here in the states. Um, she, I'm sure she spent $2,500 or something on my leg pads, my pants, my chest protector, my mask, my gloves. It's, it's an expensive sport. And, um, I just don't have the money or the time to be able to do it anymore, really. But I did love it. And, and I was pretty good. Most people will, that knew me will tell you I was, I was a pretty good netminder. The so only thing I ever could do was the butterfly. Uh -huh. Um, for some reason I can't get my knees together and my ankles spread apart to do a butterfly and, and cover the bottom of the net the way that really good goalies can. So, anyway, were, you, sorry, what, so, so were you mostly a traditional style goalie, uh, like stacking the pads and all that? Um, no, I think I tried to lean a little bit more towards something more modern. And I used to come really far out of my net to cover the, to, to, um, to cover the angles well, and to cover as much of the net as possible. I would, um, uh, very often skate behind the net to, to get the puck and throw it out into the middle of the rink. I, I was not somebody that sort of stayed really, in, in the crease a lot and um, uh, and stack the pads. I, I was much more up and down than that. I just, like I said, I couldn't get, I couldn't get the butterfly down. Here's a funny story, by the way. Um, I was very, very um, aggressive to people that got anywhere close to my crease. Mm -hmm. And so I used to take my stick. And for those of you who don't know, the net miter stick tends to be a bit bigger than uh, everybody else's stick. And, and what's more, the, 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 um, the blade part of the stick, it's not just on the bottom, it comes up the stick halfway up the shaft and, and it's kind of sharper and, and bulkier. And I used to, um, if people got anywhere near my crease, I would wrap them on the ankles with my stick to get them to <laughs> get them out of my way. Cause for people that don't know what they're, what the defensemen on the, or what the offensive men uh, on the other team are trying to do when they get close to the goalie like that is block his field of vision. Um, so they can't see the puck when it's shot. And I just was not going to have that. So I would wrap them on the ankles. Well, one time, in a game, the other play, the other team star player um, did that, got up close to my crease, and I started racking him on his ankles. He got really upset. He turned around, and he started punching me. Now, mind you, I'm wearing <laughs> a chest protector and a mask and stuff designed to stop pucks flying at my head. So I didn't feel anything. I just dropped one knee, and I looked at the ref, and I raised my hands, and the star player got kicked out of the game, and then we ended up winning. So it was <laughs> Fun story. Hockey, I, uh, hockey is the best sport on the planet, hands it down. It really is. It really. I played. I moved from playing forward when I first started playing because that's where a lot of a lot of new newbies play. Especially as an adult, you start playing forward, and then I decided to move back because I'm six foot three, so mm. my extension's really big. You sound I, like a defenseman, then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I love the physicality of the game. Like I, in men's hockey, it's no, you know, it's a no check league. But when you're in front of the net, you're it's oh, yeah. physical. And that is the best part of the game, man. And there's been times like similar to what you're talking about where you're trying to push someone like, you know, get them on their, on their, um, their, their hips and you're trying to push them away from the goalie and whatnot. And you get guys that get so mad and they come back and they'll, you know, they'll cold cock you. They'll do whatever. They'll slash you with their stick. But you know, like, man, I'm really getting on this guy's nerves and it really feels good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a strategy. You, it's a, it's yeah. a way to throw the opposing so, team off their game. So you're from you're from Washington, right? 
spent my whole, almost my whole life here. I mean, it depends on what you mean by from. I was born in California in a little town that was burnt down recently called Paradise. Um, but when I was one or two years old, something like that, my family came up here and I've been here ever since. Yeah. So you're pretty excited for um, Seattle to get its own NHL team? I am, and I very much wanted to get in on a season tickets or you know or something like that, but they are prohibitively expensive. So, really? um, how yeah, expensive are they? Oh, I, thousands of dollars, something like that. It's, so, here, it's, it, I, so right here, I had a season ticket for the last couple of seasons for the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, I'm from Massachusetts, so I'm a Boston fan. Came down and um, decided to get season tickets because they're so less, like they're cheaper than the ECHL tickets that I had when I was in Massachusetts. Hmm. Uh, or about the same price. So for like 700 bucks, you can get a season ticket. Uh, so anyway. Well, I suspect it has something to do with the higher cost of living up here in Western Washington. And um, it, it's not as popular of a sport as it is in other parts of the country. And so they're going to have to charge a little bit more. You know, in time, if the costs come down, I may get season tickets. But yes, I am very excited and will definitely go to as many games as I can afford to, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, hockey is bar none the greatest sport on the planet. And if you disagree then you're a heretic. That's, That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. But that having been said, you do have at least one person in the chat saying we should get back on topic. Oh, uh, I don't know who that was. Oh, Shannon oh, Herring says, all right, back to the topic. All Thanks. Right. Well, listen, if you're a longtime <laughs> listener, you know that we like to banter back and forth. We like to keep things light every once in a while. That's we've, true. We've gotten on some pretty heavy, uh, heavy stuff so far. So, um, you know, we typically try and last about an hour. We get a few extra minutes, but I'd like to just kind of hear how did you get to where you are now as far as being a conditionalist? Um, I used to have a podcast of my own called The Apologetics, which was sort of a combination of the words theology and apologetics. Um, I'm resurrecting that podcast as a live YouTube stream here beginning in a month. So if people go to youtube.com slash theopologetics, mm -hmm. um, they can subscribe and be ready to start watching that. But anyway, as part of that podcast, I would have guests on and interview them and not just guests that I agreed with, but also guests I didn't agree with, provided they were representing views that I considered within the realm of orthodoxy. And one of those was uh, one of those guests was Edward Fudge, who wrote The Fire That Consumes, which remains sort of the seminal book on the topic um, to this day. This was back in. Uh, 2013, something like that, um, shortly after the publication of the third edition of his book. Mm -hmm. And I was a believer in eternal torment, um, had been on my Christian walk, you know, for the 10 years leading up to that. Um, but before I had Ed Fudge on the interview, or onto the podcast to be interviewed, I was in conversation with Glenn Peoples, a um, philosopher in New Zealand who is also a conditionalist. Um, and we were we were talking about some other issue and this topic came up and, and I said, well, what do you do with Mark 948, where Jesus says their worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched. And he's he just pointed me to the text that Jesus is quoting, which is Isaiah 66, 24, where it's explicitly dead bodies that are being consumed by fire and by maggots. And that got me thinking, well, oh, maybe maybe there's something worth looking into here. So I, I had Edward Fudge on the show and in an interview, interviewed him. And in the course of preparing for and conducting that debate, I went from being convinced of eternal torment to being on the fence. And then in the months that followed, I moderated a few debates. I digested as many books and articles and sermons and things that I could to try and find some, some reason to remain a believer in eternal torment. And over the course of the months that followed, there just were no reasons. And 
the thing that convinced me most of all is what I said earlier that it, it, I came to realize it with virtually no exception. All these texts that I thought taught eternal torment actually proved to teach this view. And so finally, I sort of um, bent my knee and submitted to scripture, even though I desperately wanted to remain a believer in eternal torment. Um, and then so quickly after that, I, I was invited to start participating in this new ministry that was being started called Rethinking Hell, and the rest is sort of history. Yeah, and just to be clear, I should say, um, I never had any sort of emotional or philosophical objections to the doctrine of eternal torment. Even to this day, I think God would be perfectly just um, to declare that the right punishment for sin would be immortality and everlasting life in hell, as my traditionalist brothers and sisters in Christ believe. Um, and as I said, I wanted very much to continue to believe in that view because I knew that if I changed my mind, I would suffer fallout, and I did. Um, but... I'm just too committed to the authority of the word of God. And it became clear to me that it was teaching this view as clearly as just about anything else. And so I just had to bow my Yeah. And I think when I first came to, into the Advent Christian church and, and was learning about conditional immortality, my first gut reaction was like what you said, it can't be both based on emotion. It has to be based on scripture. And I thought the, in all the arguments I heard against conditional mortality was based on what, well, these folks, they just, they can't bear to think that God would, would do that, that he would be unjust. But I've always been of the opinion that, and I think this is what the Bible speaks to. And if we have a, if we have a robust view of who God is in his nature, that he is the one who is just, he decrees what is right and wrong. We don't. So if right. we think that something's wrong and God says that it's right, we're the wrong, we're the ones who are wrong. He's the one who's right. We have to adjust our views accordingly. And um, a lot of people struggle with that. They struggle yeah. with with their view of the holiness of God and who He is, and they th and and that's where I, I get you know the, that's where a lot of atheists and agnostics come come from, where they struggle with um, understanding how we can believe that a holy and just God can condemn people to hell, um, whether whether or not that's eternal conscious torment or conditional immortality and destruction of the wicked in the end. Um, they just struggle with that, but really comes down to who is the one who defines what is just. And if it's God, then we have no right to say what is just or unjust apart from the word of God. I absolutely agree. Amen. And I'll just add as, as sort of a um, something uh, uh, to leave a stone in the shoe of anybody who's watching that, that believes in eternal torment. Um, I would venture to, I, I want to argue that this issue of justice and emotions um is every bit as much a problem on the side of eternal torment as it's alleged to be on our side. So here's what I mean by that. Just recently, the most recent debate that I had on this topic, one of my opponents, my eternal torment believing opponents arguments was that annihilation isn't a severe enough punishment for people like Hitler and Paul Pot. That's an emotional argument, right? That, that's everything. <laughs> that's, that's an absurd that. argument. It's a bad argument, but yeah. also it's an emotional argument, and it's yeah. no different, except from the other side, than the, than those um, than, than what they think people on my side are doing, which is saying, um, I can't stand the idea that God would do that. It wouldn't be fair or whatever. Um, no, the reality is God is just, and we've got to accept his standards of justice, not impose our standards on his. The other thing that I want to say about this, though, is that you, you mentioned a good point. One of the accusations that is often leveled at us is that um, we 
uh, by eternal torment believers is that we don't understand the holiness of God and the severity of sin enough that you know we we think we don't we think eternal torment is too nasty a punishment because we think sin isn't as bad as it really is mm -hmm. but i would argue that it's the opposite and here's what i mean by that in the traditional view in the doctrine of eternal torment god hates sin but only just enough to make people immortal who go on sinning forever um, and secluding them, cordoning them off, qu quarantining them in some dark, gloomy corner of the cosmos, but nevertheless guaranteeing supernaturally that sin will exist forever by making people who do it immortal. So God hates it, he'll punishment, but he guarantees supernaturally that it will happen forever by making people who do it immortal. In our view, God hates sin so much, he will finally and forever obliterate it entirely. He will get rid of it from his cosmos, and anybody who refuses to bend the knee will be obliterated right along with sin. So which, gods takes, which God takes sin more seriously, the one who immortalizes sinners so that they can sin forever, or the one who obliterates sin entirely? I think the answer to that question is pretty clear. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I posed this question to somebody yesterday. I was having a, I was actually having a conversation with, with one of the members of my congregation because um, they had a question about conditional immortality. Because believe it or not, even within our circles, many of our churches aren't purely um, conditionalist. Many are, mm. we have a mixed. In fact, uh, my last church, I would say the majority opinion was probably eternal conscious torment. Um, in, in my current church, I just haven't been here long enough to really figure it out. But we're talking and, um, you know, it was like, but destroying someone like killing them forever annihilating them just doesn't sound like it's a like like what you just said that doesn't sound like a bad enough punishment i said okay i respect that you don't think that that's a bad enough punishment but why do so many people that are facing the death penalty plead out so that they just get life in prison yep. well I'd, I'd rather be i'd rather be put to death than than be in prison yeah well you're not being charged with murder so you're not really you're talking about a punishment that you're not facing right Right. Uh, so maybe maybe if you do murder someone in the future, which I hope you don't, um, then you might have to like choose: Am I going to plead out and get life in prison, or am I going to, or am I going to face the death penalty? And really, what we're talking about in our view is someone who is going to be utterly destroyed, and we take no joy in saying that. Like That's it's right. not something that we want um, want to happen. And I was thinking, it's so you're you have become at least in in some of our Advent Christian circles, and at least in my view, one of the great apologists for the conditionalist, uh, the conditionalist perspective. Or, or um, and I think you're a really good person for that because when I do hear people talk about, well, they'll, they'll cite a scripture that mentions destruction, and they'll say, "See, destruction. They're going to be in eternity, being destroyed for all of eternity, and they're going to be alive, and and all this." And you go, dude, if you took a TV. Like, this is my thinking. This is what I would say if someone said that. I would look at him and go, if I took a TV and dropped it from um, a 12-story window and then got to the bottom of, of that three or 12-story window and took a hammer and just kept smashing the TV, I would be destroying it. It's not working. It's not alive anymore. Like, how, why do you get to redefine what destruction is? And that's that's a charge to the, to the, um, ECTers. I just don't get it. I don't see how how they keep that perspective. Well, they hold that perspective by looking at texts in which the language of destruction is used to describe things other than people, 
or in ways other than the ways it's used about hell. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the, the, the Greek word apolemy, um, you sometimes hear people that aren't as trained in Greek as, as I am say apolumi or something like that. No, it's apolemy. And it's the Greek word that is used, that's translated destroy in Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, don't fear man who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear God who can apolemy, destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, um, that word is also used to describe oil that is spilled out on people's heads. It's used to describe a coin and a sheep that are lost. It's used to describe food that rots. So it's got a bit of a semantic range and, and the kind of obliterative, annihilative destruction that you and I tend to think of when we think of the word clearly isn't what it's meaning in these other places where the word is being used. And so what they do is they just they take that semantic range and they say what it means for a human being to be destroyed may fall somewhere else within the semantic range than this one meaning of obliteration or whatever. Now, the problems with that response are manifold. Um, firstly, you don't take what a word means when it's describing inanimate objects like sheep and oil and then say, well, this is what it means when you apply it to human beings. Mm -hmm. Number two when the word describes human beings in the way it's used in Matthew 10, 28, it consistently means to slay or kill in the synoptic gospel. So for example, the Pharisees want to apollo me Jesus. They don't want to ruin him. <laughs> they don't want to lose him. They want to kill him. Um, Herod wanted to apollo me the baby Jesus. He wanted to kill the baby Jesus. So, so what, what, uh, what traditionalists are doing when they use that argument is they're committing a fallacy that D.A. Carson, we talked about Carson a little bit ago, he's a great guy in his book, Exegetical Fallacies, is a must-have for anybody's bookshelf. Um, they're committing a fallacy that D.A. Carson calls illegitimate totality transfer or the unwarranted expansion of a semantic field. And what that means is if you've, when you've got a word with a wide semantic range, you don't get to assume that any any meaning within that range applies in any given use of the word. You have to let context determine that. And so just because a polymy might mean ruin or waste in one of these other contexts doesn't mean that you can expand to that meaning to that word's entire semantic range in Matthew 10, 28, even though we have context telling us what that means. So yeah, I would just encourage believers in eternal torment to rethink these kinds of rebuttals and and do the hard work of exegeting the text. Don't don't fall into these exegetical fallacies and and it, just to defend a cherished tradition. Let's yeah. be willing to let our holy cows be overturned. You know, amen. That's and that's why it's so important for us to do proper exegesis and have a good conversation with people. And, and um, if there's one book that you would recommend to someone to better understand conditional immortality, what book would you recommend? I mean, I, I very much would like to be able to uh, recommend a book of my own. I don't have a book <laughs> to the kind of person that you're that you're representing there. Um, I, I'll, I'll offer two books, one for two different kinds of questioners. Um, for those that are somewhat academically minded, they're either seminary students or people that are in theology all the time like we are, and they can handle a meatier, more academically oriented book. Um, as I said earlier, the book the book to go with is Edward Fudge's The Fire That Consumes. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you're somebody that's more of a lay theologian, somebody who's just in the pews and, and doesn't spend a lot of time um, debating and arguing about theology like nerds like you and me, then um, I would encourage them to get Edward Fudge's popular version of that book called Hell, colon, A Final Word. Um, 
uh, and, and they'll get a much more sort of uh, accessible presentation of conditionalism. Those are both good books. Now, I do think those are the first books people should get, but there are other books that I would hope that they'd supplement their library with, uh, including the ones that you asked me about, which are here over my shoulder here. So <laughs> don't stop at, at the fire to consume or hell a final yeah. word, but that's where you want to start. Yeah, and it, it is. I remember when I first came to Conditional Immortality, it became the focal point of my study of scripture. Like, you know, and now I think as I've settled on the doctrine, um, I've moved on. So I do want to caution people enjoy enjoy the exploration into that sphere of theology, into that focal point, but you don't have to stay there. Um, Correct. Any, anybody who, you know, one of the things I do appreciate about you is you, you are um, defending not only just conditional mortality, but other aspects of theology, other doctrines of truth. So that is important for us to, to narrow in, spend um, six months, a year, however long it takes to really get a firm understanding of what your belief of, of hell is, whether it's eternal conscious torment or conditional mortality, but don't stay there. Continue to learn, yeah. continue to grow. Christ has called us to a life in which we get to treasure him, we get to enjoy him, and we get to learn all of his truths from now until eternity. So, I mean, that's that's a joy. We don't, we don't have to master everything overnight. Um, it's something that we can continually grow on. One of the things I appreciate about you, Chris, is you continue to maintain your career as a software engineer um and also you're going to be a seminary professor a bible college professor um i mean that's that's pretty cool man um not one it, it's like i think it was body bachman who said who said it a couple of years ago he said one of the greatest tragedies we have in the church is when a man likes to study theology we tell him to go be a pastor uh, <laughs> you don't have to be a you know uh to be a pastor, you should study theology, but not all people who study theology should be a pastor. Um, it, God has a unique call on each of us. I agree wholeheartedly, uh, and I appreciate the sentiment, um, but the reality is my remaining a software engineer has far more to do with what's practical for my family right now than it does a desire to be bivocational. Um, you know, people think I'm crazy for wanting to become a professor because my salary will be less than a quarter of what it is now. Um, but it's what I really want to do. And, you know, when I have to put eight hours of my day into software, I don't have a lot of time or energy left for things I'm much more passionate about. And so, yes, I'm, I'm doing software still so that I can continue to provide for my family. But in a number of years, my hope is that one day I'll be teaching full time. So cool. I'll take your, I'll take your thanks and, and, and your appreciation now, but just be aware that hopefully, or at least I think it's hopefully in some point in the future, I'll be entirely teaching full time. We all have very practical needs. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you got to, and besides, you live in like the communist state of Washington and California. They're all the same thing. So things are really, really expensive there. So they are, they are. But I think that has more to do with uh, the Western Washington being a hub of uh, technology than it does being a very socialist government state. Um, yeah. You know, we've got Microsoft and Amazon and, and, and a number of other companies up here. And I think that's why the cost of living is high, because the cost of living isn't high in, say, eastern Washington, um, I don't think. Um, but there you don't have any of these technology centers. So, yeah. Well, cool, man. Hey, I really appreciate the conversation, all that you had to add um, coming on. Um, it's just it's really been a pleasure. I'm really glad Luke wasn't here and I hope he hears that. <laughs> Uh, I'm just kidding. It would have been um, you would have enjoyed Luke. He's a great guy. Um, 
maybe next maybe we'll have you on again if if you'd be willing to talk about i don't know something else but you're a great guest so thank you for coming on um we typically end with a talking about creeds confessions and statements of faith i love confessions um i I, do you like confessions at all like reading them confessions of faith not so much they're interesting to me but I much prefer the very short and easily memorized ecumenical creeds than than the performed okay. confessions. Yeah. Okay, well that's fair. That's fair. Well, we also um, we have a catechism used within our denomination called the Blessed Hope Catechism. Uh, so if you do know of people who are looking for a conditionalist catechism, they can actually pick it up on Amazon. I think it's like maybe ten or fifteen bucks. Uh, and we typically go through one question at the end of an episode. So if you okay. don't mind, I'd like to just share. And it's actually timely. So we're going chronologically. Um, we're looking at question 27, or excuse me, 28. I don't know why I screwed that up. But the question is, why did God create the tree of life? Why did God create the tree of life? You know the answer? Well, I see the answer on the screen. I'm not yeah. 100% <laughs> in agreement. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not a hundred percent in agreement. We might have some viewers who were the um, who helped write this, but the answer is to grant immortality to those who eat of it. Genesis three twenty two to twenty three. Then the Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest we reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever." Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, uh, you have said that you disagree with it. We might have some of the uh, some of the authors of this watching and listening um, as charitably and kindly as you typically are. Tell us how we are wrong. Yeah, I, I, I should say it's not that I disagree with it. I just think it's an incomplete answer. Okay. Um, if, if the reason that God created the tree of life was solely to grant immortality to those who eat it, then we wouldn't, uh, th- then we wouldn't see it in the apocalyptic symbolism of Revelation 22. I mean, we shouldn't read Revelation 22 as an indication that the tree of life will literally be in the new heavens, new earth. At least that's my take. I think it's a symbol in John's vision of u- of the kind of union we have with Christ by which we get our immortality when we are resurrected and glorified. Mm-hmm. So I would just offer a, a fuller answer. Not a different answer. I would say, why did God create the tree of life? For two reasons. One, to grant immortality to those who eat of it, and the only ones who did were Adam and Eve. But secondarily, and more ultimately, to prefigure um, the the resurrected Christ, in whose immortality we share by virtue of faith in Him. And that's why Chris Date will be asked to help uh, co-edit <laughs> the the. So we have the Blessed Hope shorter version. He'll be in the the, the kind of like the Westminster larger catechism. Um, just kidding, Chris. Thank that's you. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, um, when are you gonna get it back on the ice, man? Oh, geez, I don't know. Like I said, it's an expensive and, and time-consuming sport. I'll, I'll probably just stick with ping pong and powerlifting. Those are a lot cheaper and a lot less timely, uh, time-consuming. Ping pong and powerlifting. You sound like a preacher already. <laughs> I do. I do work a lot of alliteration into my into my um, lectures and things when I can. Okay. Well, we do have someone. In fact, I was trying to have them on today to be a co-host. Um, he's actually in a board meeting at three o'clock in the afternoon, but. Um, he he was one of the authors of the catechism last episode he said that if you don't uh if you don't use alliteration then it's not a real sermon as you're <laughs> right. he was joking that, he was joking that and three to five numbered lists right <laughs> <laughs> he, 
those two things. That's right. So, all right, Chris. Well, hey, thanks for being on. Everybody who is watching and listening, thank you for chiming in. I'm sorry we didn't get to as many of your questions. Um, we just kind of got off in our own little world uh, and enjoyed the conversation. So God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.